Welcome back. This is the long-awaited second episode of Discus, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, where we bring you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. This podcast is a production of the Spinal Cord Injury Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of the American Physical Therapy Association. And I'm Rachel Tappan. Now today, we've got Dr. Monica Perez joining us from the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago, where she is the scientific chair of the Arms and Hands Lab. She's a professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation in the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University, as well as a research scientist at the Heinz VA. And uh, last but not least, she's a physical therapist. So welcome, Dr. Perez. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me here today. Oh, we're happy to have you. And so today, we'll be talking about neuromodulation in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. Neuromodulation, especially epidural and transcutaneous electric stimulation, have been a hot topic in spinal cord injury research and in the news over the last year or two. Today, we're going to take a step back and provide a primer of several different neuromodulation protocols and talk about their potential in spinal cord injury rehab. We'll talk about three of the neuromodulation protocols that you'll find in the research. So the first is spike timing dependent plasticity. That's also sometimes referred to as paired associative stimulation. Second, we'll talk about epidural and transcutaneous electrical spinal cord stimulation. And then last, we'll talk about operant conditioning. And so for related reading, we'll refer you to a paper of Dr. Perez's. It's titled Targeted Plasticity in the Corticospinal Tract After Human Spinal Cord Injury. And it was published in Neurotherapeutics in 2018. So this paper is a review that does a deeper dive into the first protocol that we'll talk about, spike timing dependent plasticity. And the full reference is in the description of this podcast. And so on to our interview. Um, so Monica, first, uh, can you tell us in a uh, more broader sense, what is neuromodulation? Neuromodulation are changes in activity in the central nervous system that are usually induced through the delivery of a stimulus. And these stimulus could be, uh, for example, electrical stimulation, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or transcranial direct current stimulation. The goal of neuromodulation is to change the activity at a specific site in the central nervous system. Uh, it aims to either normalize or modulate the function of different type of tissue in the central nervous system. Okay. So you're really trying to uh, change somehow how the central nervous system is, is functioning. Exactly. Yes. That's what we're trying to do. And hopefully, and these changes will result in improvements in performance or in voluntary motor output in our patients. Okay, yeah, I guess that's the, the end goal. That makes sense. And now earlier, we mentioned that there are three different types of neuromodulation protocols that we're going to talk about. And I'd like to get a start to get a sense of each of these specific protocols. And so let's start with the, the spike timing dependent plasticity. Um, what, what is that? Yeah, spike time independent plasticity is a biological process by which uh, we aim to change the strength of synaptic connections between neurons. Uh, we can upregulate the strength or we can downregulate the strength. Um, this process adjusts the strength of synaptic connections 
based on the relative timing of a particular neuron's output and also an input of an action potential. Uh, this is the protocol that we have been using in our laboratory uh, since 2012. Um, this is the first time that this principle was used um, targeting the spinal cord in patients with spinal cord injury. I see. And can you explain maybe a little bit more about like, what's involved? What are the logistics of, of doing this type of neuromodulation? Yes, a protocol that used the principles of spike time-independent plasticity uh, in research is pair-associative stimulation. So in this approach, uh, we use uh, two types of stimulus. For example, one could be transcranial magnetic stimulation over the primary motor cortex uh, to activate or elicit uh, uh, descending bolus that go down to the spinal cord. Uh, and this transcranial magnetic stimulation stimuli is paired with supramaximal stimulation of a peripheral nerve. And that stimulation of a peripheral nerve activates, aim to activate spinal motor neurons antidromically. So bolus go back to the spinal cord. So in our laboratory, we use this principle and this protocol, and we aim to target um, synaptic plasticity in the spinal cord, in the connection between a corticospinal cell and a motor neuron. Uh, we aim to strengthen this connection by just changing the relative timing at which transcranial magnetic stimulation and peripheral nerve stimulation is applied. And these follow principles of long-term potentiation or long-term depression. And we can induce, to some extent, these phenomenon, uh, both phenomena are, which are consistent with the principles of spike time-dependent plasticity. But we induce these um, processes by artificially by just changing the timing of stimulation. Okay. Let's see. I'm going to I'm going to try saying this back to you to see if I'm understanding and and hopefully this will help listeners if we if they get it twice as well. So you're using TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation basically to to elicit a response from the primary motor cortex, so like from the upper motor neuron in the corticospinal tract. And then if you time that just right with the stimulation of the peripheral nerve, which is this which is then sending a more ascending volley from the lower motor neuron. Um, or I guess an ascending volley from the the sensory neuron? Would it be the... Yeah, that's a good question. We we try to target, we use very strong stimuli, so we try to activate the motor neurons, and, and the motor neurons generate action potentials that go antidromically back to the spinal cord. So uh. we time the arrival of descending bolus that are evoked by transcranial magnetic stimulation and the arrival of antidromic bolus that are elicited by peripheral nerve stimulation uh, of a peripheral nerve. And then we play with the interval. And this is what we use to try to strengthen the synaptic connection uh, or in the corticospinal pathway. Okay. I'm going to try this again now. So you're, so you're using TMS... To, to fire the neurons in the primary motor cortex, you're all sort of from above the spinal cord, and then you're also firing the peripheral no nerve below the spinal cord. And as if you time those two pieces just right compared to each other, you can either um, get long-term depression or potentiation of that synapse. 
Exactly, that is correct. So usually when these sending bullets arrive a few milliseconds before we depolarize the motor neuron, uh, we can strengthen synaptic plasticity or synaptic connections. But if we do the other, uh, if we reverse the order, if we, uh, if decent, if antidromic bullets in the motor neurons arrive in the spinal cord uh, a few milliseconds before the sending bullets arrive in the spinal cord, we can depress synaptic, the strength of synaptic connections. Yeah, and, and so how long does that last? So if you do one you know, one volley down, one volley up, how long does that um, potentiation or, or depression last? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. So usually we use 180 pair of pulses. Uh, and, and then the protocol, one of the protocols that we are running uh, currently at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, the stimulation period lasts for 30 minutes. And then we take measurements before and after the stimulation to see if the stimulation was sufficiently effective or not in order to change excitability in the corticospinal pathway. Um, we also have a protocol in which we do the stimulation, we carry on the stimulation for 30 minutes, and then patients are performing exercise training. Uh, for uh, approximately a period of uh, 45 minutes. And they repeat, uh, in one of our protocols, um, patients are enrolled for 40 sessions, and we, took, we take measurements before and after, uh, and we do a follow-up uh, a few months after the stimulation is done. I see. So this, so this sounds like the kind of thing where you could do an intervention of the, the spike timing-dependent plasticity intervention alone, but it sounds like you're also then pairing it with rehabilitation to see if you can get more, if it can get more better, more gain from the two things combined using the, using it as an adjunct to rehab as opposed to yes. just using it as, yes. a, we, as its we own. Yes, we just have a, a paper that is recently uh, accepted uh, in BRAIN that demonstrates that when we train and we do physical exercise, which is similar to what we do in a regular uh, session of physical therapy, if we combine that with the stimulation for 30, 40 minutes before, uh, the effects of the stimulation are, uh, the effect of the exercise are stronger. Uh, we train a group of people, uh, patients that receive some stimulation or other group that receive real stimulation, and the improvements on the group and that receive the real stimulation were much larger. So that means that this stimulation is engaging and is positive to access some um, pathways that are affected by the injury, more than just doing exercise. So we're very excited by that because that means that even though they progress, patients improve with rehabilitation just with exercise, but they can further improve if we add the stimulation. That's really, that's exciting. And and I don't know if you can say yet before that paper is out, but how big were the how big were the differences between the exercise only and then the exercise with the stimulation group? Yeah, I think I think one of the most important results is that we found that the group that received the real stimulation, the effect of the therapy lasted for a longer period of time. 
uh, and these effects were present six months after the 40 sessions of training and stimulation. So this is very exciting for us. This is the first time that we have seen that the results of one of these neuromodulatory strategies last for such a long period of time. Um, so we have currently a waiting list here at Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in order to enroll more patients in this in this protocol. I, I can imagine. I can imagine. I, you know, my my clinical practice is an outpatient. I see a lot of people with who have chronic spinal cord injuries, and um, that seems like a big issue of not just how do you get gains in rehab, but how do you keep the gains that you make after the rehab is over? So that, gee, if you can fix that, that'd be super fantastic. Yes, I think Rachel, that that's one of the main problems that we have. That we we could see uh, at times great changes, large changes in excitability. Uh, but they don't last. So you're totally right. One of the main problems that we have is to make these protocols to have long-lasting effects. So, so this is a good beginning. Uh, so we're starting, we're running this trial right now, and we have plans for future trials that will use the knowledge that we have learned from this protocol, um, from these results, to design a hopefully better and stronger protocol. That's great. Really, that's exciting. Um, well, and I would, I'd love to talk more about this, except that we have two more protocols to, to cover. Um, and, and I guess in the interest of keeping, you know, this relatively brief, um, let's, let's move on a bit to epidural and transcutaneous spinal cord electrical stimulation. And, and so can you tell us a bit about that? What, what is that? And, and um, how is that? What's the potential for that, uh, that intervention's use in rehab? Yes, epidural stimulation is the use of electrical current to the spinal, over the spinal cord. Uh, the stimulation is usually carried on through an implanted electrode, and that implanted electrode goes over the dura of the spinal cord. Uh, in our laboratory, this is an invasive methodology. Uh, what we are using right now is transcutaneous electrical stimulation. So we can use very similar types of current, um, electrical current, and, and similar parameters, but we go over the surface of the spine. Um, and we aim to induce uh, similar changes. And there's good evidence also in the literature that both types of stimulation, epidural or transcutaneous, electrical stimulation of the spinal cord can both result in um, improvements in performance that are also temporary. Uh, but uh, we are trying to combine the protocol that I described before, uh, earlier on, with this protocol to see if we can have a synergistic effect between these two types of plasticity that we induce by these two different types of neuromodulation. Oh, so combining both the spike timing dependent, the, the paired associative um, stimulation and the and like a transcutaneous yes. spinal cord stimulation? And, and the, the, the goal here is to change the excitability of the spinal motor neurons by using transcutaneous electrical stimulation. And then we think that this think that this will be more permissive to induce the spike time independent plasticity. So this is the new protocol that we are in, currently developing. Okay, that's exciting too. Gee, and now thinking about the differences and the effects of the two different type, these two different types of neuromodulation, are they? I mean, are they doing the the same thing basically, or are they impacting different 
points along the pathway? Like what, what's, the, what's the difference in effect between the two? Yes, I mean, both protocols, both neuromodulation protocols aims to target the spinal cord, change plasticity in the spinal cord, and they both do, but in a different way. So with transcutaneous electrical stimulation, we directly activate uh, dorsal roots uh, and afferent fibers that project to spinal motor neurons, uh, but with the pair associative stimulation, we play a little bit with the arrival and the timing of descending bolus and antidromic bolus um, going into the spinal cord. So if you think about both protocols target the spinal cord, but they do it in a different way. And the other important thing to remember is that the mechanisms that mediate this type of uh, plasticity induced by these protocols are also different. Um, Spike-dependent time-dependent plasticity is more most mediated by mechanisms in the spinal cord. Uh, we, we don't cause changes in the primary motor cortex, but we have recently have another paper accepted in Journal of Neuroscience where we show that with transcutaneous electrical stimulation, we have dual effects. We have effects in the primary motor cortex and also in parallel in the spinal cord. So it's interesting to think about not only the, the beneficial effects, but also think about the mechanisms and the differences in the mechanisms that mediate uh, these two different types of plasticity protocols. Sure. And I can see then how that might impact how doing more than one protocol, even at the same time, could, could give you more effect, make things more better. Yes, you know, it's interesting because I think, I think this goes back and brings us back to how important it is to understand a little bit more what these protocols are doing uh, to the central nervous system. Uh, because sometimes we think it's better to combine more protocols, but in certain cases, uh, that's not the case. In certain cases, we can combine protocols, but we don't see any additional benefit. So it's very important to try to understand the mechanism and see if there is and test uh, primarily if there is a real synergistic effect. Um, we have found in other protocols that we have used and that even though theoretically you could think that it's better to combine certain aspects of plasticity, sometimes that's that results in physiological changes, but no beha behavioral changes. So it's very important to to go back a little bit, think about the mechanisms, test the mechanisms, and then apply these principles into a, into a therapy environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and ultimately, if you're not getting more of a change in behavior and, and ability, then why do more more than you need to? Yes, yes. This brings a lot of questions. Uh, so, so I, I think it's so important to to understand these protocols. I think I understand the, the rush in rehab in trying to bring some of these protocols to the clinic, uh, and I think we are getting there. You know, we're slowly walking through that direction. But I think at the same time, this has to be together with an understanding, improving our understanding of how these protocols are working, because that really helps us to design better strategies stronger strategies, strategies that will last for a long period of time, hopefully. Sure. Well, then, then let's move on to that third um, protocol of neuromodulation we, we started with, was, which is um, operant conditioning. Can you tell us about that? 
Yes, open conditioning is a methodology, is a method of learning that occurs through rewards and punishment of a behavior. Um, uh, through open conditioning, an association is made between a behavior and a consequence for that behavior. So uh, in the United States, uh, there's two researches that have been widely working and extensively working in open conditioning. Uh, uh, introduction of operant conditioning in rehabilitation, and these are doctors uh, Jonathan Wolpa and Aiko Thompson. They have translated this principle into real stimulation in humans with spinal cord injury by combining transcranial magnetic stimulation or peripheral nerve stimulation, and they, the behavior that they try to modify is an H reflex. It's a largely monosynaptic reflex, and they use this uh, methodology, this method of learning, to change a behavior. And they have shown that by changing this behavior, you can also uh, induce changes in motor performance. Okay. Um, and so how does operant conditioning, you know, so in, in operant conditioning, then you're, you're also pairing TMS and peripheral nerve stimulation. Um, how can you describe a little bit more about how that's different than, um, say, the spike to, uh, spike timing dependent plasticity? Yes. So, so the peripheral nerve stimulation is used to just elicit the H reflex, and that is the behavior that I'm trying to modulate. And the transcranial magnetic stimulation is used to elicit a behavior, which in that in their case is a a motor evoked potential. So they elicit a behavior, which is an electrophysiological outcome that they're trying to modify, uh, to, and then they generate this principle of operant conditioning. So oh. it's a little bit different than how we are using the, uh, the, the technique. And it's also interesting to see that the same technique can be used in a variety of ways. Right. So their target... So one big difference then is that their target is the H reflex specifically. Yes, their, tar their target is the H reflex, and they use peripheral nerve stimulation to elicit the reflex. Or they target a motor evoked potential, which is induced by uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So they are targeting that behavior by trying to upregulate the size or downregulate the size uh, of a reflex or a motor evoked potential. And then are they finding then that that's leading to changes in function as well? Yes, they, they have been training patients uh, with spinal cord injury for, for repeated sessions, and they have found that locomotor outcomes improve. So people are able to work, uh, to walk uh, uh, a little bit better than before the stimulation. So they also have improvements in motor performance. So we have talked about three different protocols, and, and in all of them, they're using um, different techniques to elicit plasticity, and all of them, to some extent, uh, result in improvements in motor performance. That's great. Well, and you mentioned a little bit ago that, you know, you, you talked about how important it is to be looking at not just what are the improvements that happen with neuromodulation, but also the why these things are happening. Um, but as you as you bring up like clinical use, of course, it makes me think wonder a bit how close are we to um, clinic ready on on any of these protocols. Yeah, this is a very good question, and, and many people ask that question, especially patients. Um, 
And I think we are advancing, advancing, and that is for sure. Uh, the two plasticity protocols that uh, our group is, is focusing on is, are using uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So one of the main problems is that uh, you know you cannot bring one of those stimulators at home. Um, this is a very expensive, sophisticated piece of equipment, and uh, it's only used for research. But we are working on alternatives, alternatives to try to uh, induce activation of the primary motor cortex by using natural tasks or natural movements that we can combine with peripheral nerve stimulation. So we are, we are actively working and developing strategies that will allow us to use the same principles of plasticity that we described uh, previously, um, or I described previously, but now using natural movements instead of uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, replacing wow. that. So that will make those protocols accessible for at the home environment. That's that's really exciting. So basically, trying to stimulate the primary motor cortex with movement rather than uh, mag- magnetic stimulation. Exactly, but it's not any movement also. It's just timing the movement and finding the appropriate time within the movement where we will uh, realize and figure out that uh, the peripheral nerve stimuli will go back to the spinal cord and we can elicit the same phenomenon. So we're actively working. It's more difficult than it seems, uh, but uh, we have been working already for a couple of years, actually, in trying to develop these new uh, wearable devices that hopefully can de- result in, in improvements and generate the same type of plasticity. It's much easier to use these sophisticated pieces of equipment, uh, but we also realize that this uh, doesn't have the possibility to go back to the patient's houses. So, so if we want to make this protocols available uh, at the clinic, we need to uh, generate better ways of stimulating the brain or activating those neurons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially for doing things like 4D sessions and things like that. That's a, you know, that's a whole nother ball game, isn't it, as far as making that accessible? Exactly. And also because maybe patients can use these wearable devices at home for a long period of time. They don't have mm. to come to the laboratory or to the clinic for an hour or for two hours, but they can use it for prolonged periods of periods of time, and we have evidence today that more stimulation uh, in many cases is more beneficial. So if we can develop these devices that allow patients to use in a safe uh, manner the the stimulation combined with movement, uh, uh, this might result in better improvements in the long run. Well, gee, more to come. That's, um, that sounds really exciting. Sounds like a future episode of this podcast to me, too. So you're not off the hook yet, I guess. <laughs> um, well, boy, you know, Dr. Prez, thank you so much for um, talking with me during this time. I, I think this has, I know, been helpful for me to better understand um, some of these neuromodulation techniques where I've, you know, read bits and pieces in the literature. And this has uh, really helped me understand each one, but also how they compare to e- each other. So I, I really, I appreciate um, your time and expertise. Thank you, Rachel. It's been a pleasure for me and and. and- Please, uh, I'm, I'm sure we will keep in touch, and especially because I'm also a physical therapist, so I uh, I have uh, 
a deep interest in, in understanding and in letting people know about these protocols in the physical therapy community. Yeah, well, keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Discus, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science. Be sure to catch us next time. I'll be talking to Candy Tuffertiller from Craig Hospital, and we'll continue the discussion about neuromodulation and its application to spinal cord injury rehab. Until then.